0: Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and here is part six in this series on footnotes to the book of Job. In this episode, I want to focus on the nature of the self and especially on the ego as an aspect of the self that we tend to have the the best or easiest access to. Actually, the self is going to be the focus of the next three episodes uh, because it's just such a huge subject. And even after three episodes, I'm probably only going to have just begun to scrape the surface. The subject of the self is is just about as abstract a subject as any podcast could be about, and I'm not going to in any way cover the subject of the self completely because I don't think that's possible, but I hope that dwelling on this abstraction or in this abstraction can produce some concrete insights and even maybe some practical wisdom. After looking at the self and the ego in this episode, I'm going to tackle the difficult idea and reality of ego death in the next episode. Ego and ego death are always related, but we don't always notice how central these categories are to all healthy theology. I think it's these categories are, are part of the entire biblical narrative because they deal with selves in context. So let's turn our focus to Job himself. He's this really fascinating and complex character and incredibly beautifully vulnerable and really deeply human. His depth and his frailties are made absolutely apparent to us, in a way naked to us, as I suggested in the previous episode. What is amazing in the book of Job is that the the portrait of Job is almost certainly one of the richest in religious history. In the book of Job, we get to witness the psychological intricacies of a man in a way, under torture. And there's a part of me that wants to speculate that the writer of Job was at the very least recording something of his own subjective experience in the process of setting up this, uh, this believable fiction. I'm certainly not going to be able to do justice to the character of Job here, and we're going to come back to him, and especially to the subject of ego death, again in the next episode. But hopefully I can hint in the right direction, at least in terms of unpacking some of what he helps us to see. I've been dwelling on the subject matter for a while now and in a way dwelling in it uh, too and it's pretty revolutionary stuff to think about so I hope it is revolutionary for for you too. So in chapter 7 of the book of Job, Job is in the midst of another reverie about the shortness and brutality of life when he asks God, what is humankind that you make so much of them? In other words, Job is asking why God would bother with us at all. The question is an echo of of the same exact question men, mentioned in the eighth Psalm, but the feeling of the question is very different from what you find in that Psalm. The psalmist utters that question out of a sense of awe at the magnitude of the universe, and and at this just this idea that that God would be mindful of people given the size of the u- universe and. It's, it's kind of as if um, an ordinary mortal is, is incredibly moved um, if a king or celebrity or, you know, person of power were to give them any time. But in Job, the question takes on a kind of ironic quality. Job is not awed, but belittled and terrified and, and humiliated and wounded and distraught. He is, to use a nautical metaphor, unmoored. He's a bit like a little boat left to a really cruel and violent ocean with no anchor. Job is somehow aware, albeit incompletely, that his own woes are linked to the divine will. But he has no idea how or why. He has very little to go on except his own experiences and his own distress. It's this perplexity that gets him to wonder why God would bother with us doesn't god god's bothering with us equate to us having more trouble than we'd like i mean basically that's what job is wondering is this how god cares for us what a strange way to care for us what do, what good does it do for god to care for us why does he bother if he bothers at all and doesn't god have bigger leviathans to fry so he is totally adrift in the tehom the 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 void in a way the the wildness the chaos of his own agony, job feels himself absolutely terrified by night nightmares and he even feels as if his own soul is turning against him. He feels like a house divided and shredded and torn apart, and he even wonders if he has in fact sinned, even though he on some psychological you know very deep level of self-analysis has realized that he has not done anything wrong, certainly not anything that would deserve this sort of treatment. But then he asks, you know, if he has in fact sinned, what difference would sin make to God? Surely God should be above that, untouchable in some way? These questions touch on the deeper issue of the nature and place of the self within the created order, as well as the self's awareness of itself and its connection with reality and the truth. As I've already mentioned, when we are confronted with chaos, it's really natural to ask how we might discern the meaning of things or of what we're going through. How are we going to find order again given that everything has fallen into ruin? And what Job is getting at here is that when things fall apart, when the center just does not hold, it's not unlikely that we will in fact also ask who we are, or how we fit into the scheme of things, or perhaps if we even fit into the scheme of things. So the question, who are we, opens up another question. Do we even matter? That's really what Job is asking here. Questions surrounding the nature and place of the self in the cosmos are as old as humanity itself. And the answers to these questions are really abundant and still multiplying. In history you'll find talk of pre-modern, p- modern and post-modern selves. You get thinking selves and embodied selves. You get singular and plural selves, empty and saturated selves, m- multi- multiple and emergent selves, erotic and technological and post-human selves. Any exaggerated sense of the self as a heroic presence in the world is likely to support an imperialist or colonialist ideology. Any diminished sense of the value of self is likely to lead to a kind of victimhood or, or even compliance, depending of course on on the self in question. Many of the most heated debates in the world today, center on identity politics, and most of these uh, verbal and sometimes, sadly, even literal wars stem from wide-ranging disagreements on what the self even is. So if the self is in flux, then any kind of solid, defined sense of identity is taken to be a kind of crime. If the self can be clearly delineated rather than being a flux in, in a kind of cultural stream, well, then identity fluidity is a violation of being itself. Some people tend to see the self as part of a a kind of universal self as part of collective. Others tend um, to lean towards the particular um, idea of the self. In other words, the self becomes something self-standing. In fact, as trends go, conservative politics tends to be a case of the former, the idea of the self as part of collective, whereas liberal politics tends towards the latter, self as self-standing. And what this suggests, um, as I think has been confirmed in, in quite a bit of research, is that politics is bound up not only in identity, but in personality. In other words, there's a kind of subjectivity here that we have to take into account. But this raises a question, of course. Is who we are the same as the personality that we manifest? As a question like this reveals, at the very foundation of all our bafflement about the nature of the self is the fact that we are surprisingly opaque to ourselves. The greatest mysteries, which every great religious and spiritual tradition has tried to grapple with, those great mysteries are inside us. If we misunderstand the world, it is because we do not know who we are. If we misunderstand God, I would say it's because the the filter of the self is always a partial, incomplete, or maybe in some sense broken thing. If we can't find God in the chaos, it is because the self has become a black hole that sucks up all our knowledge of all things. Actually, this metaphor is pretty useful uh, because we know the effects of a black hole, well, at least partly. Um, but we're really radically unsure of what's exactly, what exactly is going on inside those black holes. When it comes to self-understanding and self-insight, we are mostly lost in space. So next time you look at another human being, and it's maybe helpful to see them for the walking infinities that they really are. See them for the intense and beautiful mysteries that they carry around within themselves. Even the most, I know this is a risky thing to say, but even the most shallow, stupid people I know are walking infinities. They are just pretending to be containers for only a small set of integers. The questions that need to be asked um, remain, what is our relationship with the world, with nature, with others, and obviously with the transcendent? At what point can we count ourselves individuated from everything that surrounds us? Can we even regard ourselves as you know being apart from the contextual frame within which we find ourselves if we could answer questions like these we would know better i think how to act in the world we we'd have a better sense of our own responsibilities this points to an important idea how we relate to the self is going to determine the trajectory of our own lives your self concept is going to shape your entire posture towards the world It's very interesting to me, uh, you know, that people who regard themselves as failures will tend to fail. It's because their self-concept limits their action in the world in this way. Or, you know, people that see themselves as heroically sort of infinitely powerful, well, they tend to act in a world that is very domineering and controlling. Both of those conceptions of the self are probably misguided and need to be corrected. And so there needs to also be a realism that that enters into our picture of ourselves because it will help us to act realistically in the world and in the process. I think to to become more real. I just need to say, obviously, is that I'm I'm aware of the so-called no self conceptions of spiritual awareness, um, and I'm going to get to that at some point, um, probably in the next episode. For now, my point is that if we know who we are, we will be better. Equipped to know how to live and move and have our being in the world. Here's an example, and I find this just totally fascinating. The ancestral Pueblo people of America used to believe that their core role in the world was to help the sun in its journey across the sky. They also had this other belief, which I just think is beautiful, which is that any act of wrongdoing destabilizes the entire universe. I just, I mean, How brilliant is that? But anyway, these um, Pueblo people felt that if they didn't help the sun, it would fail and the whole of existence would be threatened. And of course, in scientific empirical terms, this is obviously a false belief. But I think it is in existential terms truer than any science could ever be. Because it's the kind of belief that sees the self as part of a world, and it is a vital part of that world. It is, in a way, a sun-helping self, if you like, and just think, if this is the conception of the self that you had, that you were every day by rising and walking through the world with integrity, if you were helping the sun across the sky, there is no doubt that you would feel the meaning of your life incredibly deeply. How could you ever doubt your purpose if this were your conception of the self and its relation to the cosmos? one one of the curses of modernity uh, was that what sort of introduced by modernity was the so-called invention of the individual that is a self totally stranded totally torn apart from any larger context or story or purpose it's no wonder that the mo- you know that modern science for all of its gifts has brought with it a perpetual crisis of faith If you're on your own, well, then you're on your own. Any so-called help you might get in the individualist universe would have to be a mere kind of accidental moment of contact with another accidental individual self. In the beginning of the book of Job, we find a man who has a sense of his own self, his own place in the world. He knows his role, what he has, what he must sacrifice, what he must achieve, and then, in a pretty potent sense, he is de-worlded. His world is taken away from him, torn away from him. His servants die, his children die. His body, although once healthy, starts to work against him. He even feels like his soul is working against him. He, he didn't need modernity to de-world him. He just needed a catastrophe. Needed is too strong a word, I realize, but he, he just um, the catastrophe just happened. That's what de-worlded him. And what Job's friends do, albeit. Rather badly, most of the time, possibly in defense of their own fragile egos, is they try to recreate a narrative for Job to live within. If he could know, even just sense, that his life is part of a larger story, his intense existential crisis would be bearable, wouldn't it? So, what's interesting is the Bible, far from presenting us just one conception of the self, actually puts forward a few conceptions of the self. I'm going to mention only a few that have a bearing on how we understand Job's exploration of his own identity. The first, possibly the most famous, is found in Genesis. As the story goes, God makes people and then he tells them to have dominion over creation. Very famous and lots of people draw on this. And and so this is a conception of the self or the human subject as being in charge. And we see this very early on. Adam names animals and human procreation is going to play a role in allowing humanity to subdue the earth. What this leads to pretty quickly, though, is that sex breeds violence, which is a kind of, you know, alarming subtext. The conception of the self here is as something separate from nature. It's apart from the wildness of the created order, and it's therefore aligned very strongly with the ordering voice of divinity albeit in a more heavy-handed fashion. Humanity is the image of God here, which means that humanity gets to see itself as being an important conduit for the divine energy. This in itself is a beautiful idea, and I just think it's problematic if we take it too arrogantly, because it will, if taken too arrogantly, lead us into all kinds of trouble. Of course, there is a fall that follows this glorification of humanity early on in Genesis, but it isn't exactly factored into the equations of a lot of armchair theologians and anthropologists. This means that some people today still take this idea of the, the self as being, having dominion, as being the dominant narrative when it comes to understanding the self, as well as presenting us with this idea of how we should act in and relate to the world. The result of this theology, this idea of a domineering self, or a a self that dominates, the result's devastating. If you're going to insist on dominating everything, you're going to end up instrumentalizing it. And what this means is that you're likely to conceive of the dominated thing only in terms of what it does for you, rather than in terms of the good that it is in itself. In other words, you are likely to assume that your ego is the same as yourself. (laughs) There is a distinction to be made. So it is wrong, I'm saying, to assume that your ego and yourself are the same thing. And moreover, you're going to assume that your egotistical perception of things is the truth of things. An exaggerated sense of self-importance leads to an exaggerated sense of the reach of our perceptual framework. I'm going to say that again because it's an important idea. An exaggerated sense of self-importance leads to an exaggerated sense of the reach of our perceptual framework. In other words, we we understand, will pretend to understand or claim to understand more than we really can. And this actually leads to isolation, which is exactly how we might conceive of the ego. The ego, of course, is just one aspect of the self. And what the Genesis story suggests is that... There's a fall that is necessary for ego formation to take place. We, in a way, need to lose contact with the God figure and Eden to gain a sense of identity. We are cast out of Eden into the world as Adams and Eves and Cains and Abels, uniquely named and uniquely separate from others. The result of this ego formation is that we start identifying with the world in terms of our actions in it. It's not necessarily a poor way of, of, of conceiving of the self. It's just horribly incomplete. I'll come back to this idea a bit later. But it means that we'll see ourselves in terms of our actions in the world. So if I philosophize, well, then I'm a philosopher. If I bake, well, then I'm a baker. If I do accounting, then I'm an accountant. Or I'm a theologian if I theologize, a teacher if I teach, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, father, etc., son, citizen. You could think of a million labels to apply to yourself as identity markers. So it's not just how you act, but it's also how you're perceived in in terms of specific labels. And these labels are things like black, white, male, female, transgender, straight, gay, Christian, atheist, and so on. Ego formation means that we also start to understand and define ourselves according to egoic qualities, like I am a nice guy, and I'm considerate towards others, and I'm intolerant of evil, and I'm a good person, and so on. We create invisible lists in our heads of who we are versus who we are not. And this creates this very weird impression that we are who we say we are, and that we are who others say we are, or that we are what we do, or that the precise definable qualities of our concrete being equate to the self. So again, I'm not saying that this ego sense of the self is wrong. It's just horrifically incomplete, which is precisely why it's a good idea not to stop reading the Bible at Genesis 3. It's precisely the fallen self, the non-integrated self, that is named there. And for this reason, it is also the false self. It is a kind of lie or partial truth that we tell ourselves to keep us safe from the full truth of who we are and the full truth of our true potential. In the process, we create a division between our idealized sense of self and the darkest shadowy aspects of ourselves. And then we assume that we are our idealized sense of self. I might say, I'm a nice guy. I don't like conflict. I want the world to be full of love. Well, and this is very cool. I mean, it's lovely. But rather uncomfortably, it's not who I am. (laughs) Maybe it's the most pronounced aspect of who I am, and it's the most visible and obvious thing about me, possibly because that's the thing that I want people to know about me. But it's not the whole picture. As Walt Whitman famously says in one of his poems, I contain multitudes. To assume the self is this little ideal thing is to miss something fairly huge. One way that the false self plays out is when the mind, the soul, and the body are out of whack. They're, they're assumed to be, in some sense, separate. Uh, and so we become, as Nietzsche says, inverse cripples, who are very good at some things, but very terrible at others, imbalanced human beings. And another thing that entrenches the false self in its own sort of deluded um, view of the universe involves clinging to life and rejecting death. In other words, there's a dualism that insists on a A kind of false eternity over and against an endless hell. Everything is simple for the false self. There are no complications. Everything is black and white. Finally, the false self is fond of assuming a kind of pure individuality apart from others, the thing that modernity helped to foster in our western consciousness. It sees people as entirely self-creating. Ever heard of a self-made man? Well, he doesn't exist. although I'm pretty sure he thinks he does. Well, again, none of this is inherently or totally bad. It's not totally wrong to believe these things. It's just not the whole of who we are. And to enact part of our nature as if it is the whole is to do something terribly toxic. It often leads, as it did in a way for Cain, as the Genesis story tells us, to a domineering, controlling, vindictive posture towards reality. The false self assumes itself to be above the world, and thus also to be in control of the world. It's exactly this false self that gives rise to ecological catastrophe and relational breakages. The false self presents a false ordering principle. It's a kind of adolescent faith that tends towards obvious oppositions of self and other, instead of seeing them as as being somehow interconnected. What's interesting is this is not the only way of conceiving of the self. I'm certainly not in the Bible. So, the Bible, in fact, presents us with this multifaceted view of the self, and I think we would do well to pay attention. So, let's look quickly at the story of the Tower of Babel, which is in Genesis 11. What we have in that story is a mob of people who want to make a name for themselves, and they do this by constructing a ludicrously high tower that is supposed to reach up to the gods. There's a joke in the story, actually, that a lot of people miss. The joke is that God sees something happening on the ground, but it's so small and insignificant that he has to step down to investigate. And when he sees what's going on, he doesn't like what he sees. The architecture of this ego trip is all wrong. And so what he does is he decides to scatter people by creating multilingualism. And that's how the French were invented, and also everyone else. The meanings of the story are, of course, various. Uh, we will never get to the bottom of every biblical story. They are so uh, uh, profoundly archetypal and, and brilliant in terms of what they expose. Uh, one of the things that the story does reveal, for instance, is that the overextending of anything will result in the collapsing of it into its opposite. If you overheat a car, it breaks down. If you overload your computer, it freezes, uh, it shows you the rainbow rainbow wheel of death if you have a, a an apple, and then it shuts down if that's what happens. If if you overextend your mind, it ceases to be capable of thinking through things effectively. So, too much order becomes discord and and disorder. Now, this is very true of the ego too. To overextend the ego is to set up its dissolution or breakage, which it turns out is is probably what it actually needs. It is, after all, um, God who breaks down everyone's egotism um, in, in the Babel story. As the ancient Greeks said, hubris is always accompanied by nemesis. Pride comes before a fall. And the fall that comes after pride is precisely the thing that pride needs. So when we read the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, what we find is that there is one fall. This is what I would call the fall into ego. Adam and Eve become self-aware. They become selves, in a in a limited sense, of course. This is a mixed blessing. They, that is, we, end up getting alienated from paradise. So that that's the consequence of of ego formation: to be alienated, to be separate. And, to find, and so to find our way back to paradise, we need to un- undergo not a climb, but a second fall, which is counterintuitive, but it is a kind of grace that pulls us downward into heaven, because heaven, it turns out, is not above the earth, but under it. It is the ground. Hell is, in fact, the thing that is above everything, metaphorically speaking, of course, since m- metaphor... Um, metaphors are always my modus operandi here. But I'm going to talk more about that in the next episode. Another way to look at the Babel story is in terms of how it shows what it means to be a self in the world. It's a story that indicates a self that is always part of something. It's a, it's part of a context of sorts. It is a self that is in the world, not above the world. It's not just a you know brain floating above everything, but in fact an embodied self that, that lives in, in a very concrete way in the world. In fact, the Babel story tells us what has already been hinted in the Genesis story. When you assume you are above the world, you are setting yourself up for some very serious disappointment. In Deuteronomy, the symbolism of Babel is extended, not just in terms of the construction of buildings, but also in terms of how people relate to nature, which is obviously a very, very potent theme in the book of Job. There we find not that human beings are above nature, like some sort of domineering self, but that they are frighteningly vulnerable to nature. If only those anti-ecologists who cite the Genesis story of humankind's dominion over the earth decided to read the whole Bible and not just their highly edited version, that would really help. The same idea is found in various forms not the ecology idea, but just this idea of the self that is kind of part of the world, is found in various forms throughout the Hebrew Bible. And of course, it is the idea that we find very strikingly put in the book of Job. Something that Deuteronomy reveals, and I think it's vital for understanding what the Bible can mean for us today, is that the Self is not just an entity. It's not merely a center point at the mercy of all the events everywhere. Rather The self is a kind of narrative. This is absolutely the clearest thing that comes across in Job's own pronouncements, as well as in the pronouncements of his friends. When Job tries to make sense of his experiences, especially when we move through um, chapters 29, 30, and 31 of the book of Job, he talks about his story. Things were once good, he points out, so maybe they can be good again. The reason I think this is profound is because stories run deeper than labels. When you start to get to know someone, you talk about what they do, right? You um, usually ask questions along these lines when you're in um, getting to know someone, at least in, in Western cultures. You ask, what do you do? Sometimes other questions involve who you're associated with, how you met them. But soon, if you want to get to know anyone, you need to get to know their story. Job's friends are trying to find a story so is Joe because this is the primary epistemological tool we have to make sense of existence. I would say stories are a kind of technology. What stories do is they expose events that shaped us and patterns that we adopt to operate in the world. They reveal our choices um, to us. They show us how t- we might even make, make better choices in the future. But stories also reveal something that I think is really easy to overlook, which is that the ego is not the only thing about us. Ego is the most obvious thing, but it is not the whole thing. The favor that the Satan character does us in the beginning of the book of Job is that he points out that Job's motivations may not be nearly as uncomplicated and as uncontaminated as the God character thinks they are. The Satan character, this is small S Satan, if you'll remember, Um, expresses this idea that there is a darkness in us that we may not necessarily understand or have access to. We know both more and less about ourselves than we can tell. And sometimes, in fact, our knowledge of ourselves is the thing that blocks us from wisdom um, that we might acquire about ourselves. The best image that I can give you right now of what this means is that of iron filings poured onto a sheet of paper under which is a magnet. The ego is the iron filings. They, they fall in a very particular way and they form particular shapes that are very apparent to us and we can name them and re- repeat them and draw them. But there's a hidden magnetic force that is pushing and pulling those iron filings to form those shapes. If we access only the iron filings of the self, as I'm calling them, not sure this is a great metaphor, but maybe it helps. Um, If we access only the iron filings of the self without integrating and properly directing the magnetic field of the unconscious, we remain bound up in a false sense of identity. Job tries like crazy to cling to his false sense of identity, of course, because that's what people do. That's what we all do. Job laments the loss of all that, that was going well in his life before disaster-struck, as if that was the reality of who he was. Well, my view is that we need to be very reluctant to assume that whatever we have done, or whatever we think we are, is who we are. Negative theology uh, teaches us to be reluctant to name God, and I think one of the reasons for this is that we may inadvertently misname ourselves. And in so doing, we're going to inadvertently block access to the divine. Remember what I, I mentioned already about the fact that when we talk about God, we are talking about ourselves. This is why, in a weird sort of way, we need to we need to have better access to ourselves than just um, a kind of superficial access to the egoic self. Well, there is good news to all of this um, that I'm saying here, and it's tricky news because in fact the good news is the bad news, which is that the babbles will crumble and the brittle egos will crumble. We'll build these high towers assuming that this is how we're going to reach heaven. And well, maybe the high tower plays a part, but it only plays a part when it starts to crumble. Unfortunately, I feel that this is a probably the best place to end um, because as I said, this is a huge topic. I'm going to have to take it up again in the next podcast, where I'm going to unpack the the storied self, the narrative self, and and how um, ego breakage happens and what it results in. Um, and then in the episode after that, I'm going to look at um, the, the a new way of desiring, basically um, a new self of desire, um, as the Book of Job discusses it and and so that is it for now i really want to thank you for listening thank you to all of those who have given such positive feedback if you want to support my work for this podcast you can do that on patreon Um, i'd really appreciate that it it helps (laughs) and so that that's it from me until next time cheers everyone